All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Practicing Anti-Racism Clinically. Um, For today, we are your hosts, Harley Lehman and Jenny Min. We're so fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Carmen Bell. Dr. Bell is a licensed professional counselor and PsyD in the Metro Detroit, Michigan area. Her therapeutic interests include social justice, multicultural and diversity issues, trauma, emotional distress, identity, faith, and overall wellness. So if you're a student enrolled in classes at University of Michigan Dearborn, you can find her in the Counseling and Psychological Services CAPS office. And Dr. Bell has a private practice in Farmington Hills called Empowered Elevation PLLC. So her business website is www.empoweredelevationpllc.com. And you can find the link in the description of this podcast episode. Welcome, Dr. Bell. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. And so um, today's episode, we kind of are going to dive deeper on the topics we've already touched on. So in the previous episodes, we've worked towards defining cultural competency and humility, as well as providing some of those beginning steps as to how we can engage in these processes when working with clients. And so today, our goal is to discuss ways in which we can dive deeper to engage in cultural humility in and out of the therapy room. Awesome. All right. So my first question for you, Dr. Bell, is what are some examples that we may look over when we're forming case conceptualizations of clients? Right. So when you first start working with the client, um, each therapist should be doing an intake. And that's the starting factor that you're needing when conceptualizing the client is what is this client coming in for? And so it's ideal to have a really good biopsychosocial intake form that you're using to assess their background, their family, their history, um, their coping skills, but also you want to ask about those resources. And some things that you can be asking is how are they coping? What are some positive and negative ways that they're coping? And how is how are they viewing um, their world? How are they viewing that microsystem that they're living in? And what are some ways that they're regulating their emotion already? Um, how is their social support? What is their family support looking like? Um, you also want to identify is the, their culture or their race, if that's irrelevant, if they have, to, if they're praying because they're Muslim, are they, are they attending to those different cultural responsibilities as part of the way that they're coping? And so all of those things, a good biopsychosocial, um, those questions are going to give you some input in what you're needing to use to form what is this person coming in for and how are they viewing their problem and how can I help them and collaborate with them to expand maybe how they're viewing their problem and help them expand their resources or am I going to or how am I helping them what, what do they need me for right and so that biopsychosocial is going to give you a lot of information to help you conceptualize not just who they are, but what theory is going to be of best help to help them um, throughout your treatment plan. So if we're talking about a biopsychosocial model, we're looking at their biology um, and then those social factors are kind of what's tying to culture, right? So Mm -hmm. you're saying if you get a little bit of all of those pieces, you should have a general understanding, hopefully, of their culture and the way that they live and how that plays into Um, how their pathology might present, and how you can best help them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then understanding why why are they saying they're coming? 
And then as you're working with them, that conceptualization will change because then you're realizing, I know why you said you're coming, but I understand that this is the foundation of this emotional dysregulation that you're experiencing. Or, or maybe your emotional fortitude, we need to work on that. So you may be coming because of this stressor, but I find that this is a, a theme that's playing into relationships, social interests, and everything else. Right. Yeah. As we all know, they sometimes people come in and they think they're in for one thing, but you as the therapist kind of unpack that and right. figure out how what are these missing pieces. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we have to be open to understand that, that as we conceptualize, it's an ongoing process. So it's not just the during the intake, I have a problem, I'm conceptualizing what you're coming in for, and I'm going to send this diagnosis to your insurance with this case conceptualization. It's an ongoing process because, as you mentioned, things come up throughout the session, throughout the time that we're working together. So it may start as one issue, and then we open up a can of worms or a can of trauma, and all these other 10 other issues come out that we didn't know or weren't expecting, or maybe they didn't even realize were there also. So conceptualizing is an ongoing process, not just the one and done. Yeah, I think that's super, super important to highlight as well, um, you know, because a lot of times we're taught like, okay, you form the case conceptualization after you do your psychosocial interview, right? Mm -hmm. And sure, you can have a good draft, but like you said, it's an ongoing process. Absolutely. All right. And how can we assess the extent the client's identity and culture is influencing the case? Well, I would recommend assuming that identity and culture is an influence. Um, sometimes for, for people who identify as BIPOC, so Black, Indian, Asian, so anyone non-white, being authentic to our identity and culture in a predominantly white space is difficult and many times can implicitly exaggerate our emotional distress. And so, especially with all that's going on in our communities, um, socially, in the news, understanding that identity is a part of that. Our culture is a part of what we're experiencing. So even if someone's coming in for anxiety, some form of that is a lack of self-confidence in who they are. So that's identity. And if they're a Middle Eastern student and they're trying to assimilate to American culture, then you have identity and anxiety and culture that's all coming together. So for students, it's identity and culture is a major factor for non-white, for non-white students and non-white people in general. So I would recommend just in general, assuming that identity and culture is going to impact the person's emotional fortitude, their distress, even if it's not something that's blatantly obvious or it's something that's so explicit that is coming out in the session. There's an influence there. Yeah. So just by doing like we talked about in our first question um, with our general knowledge of the client's background and cultural inf information. So kind of always assuming that always plays a role in mm -hmm. the case somehow. Right. Now, how strong of a role is what you have to weed out. But understanding that to some degree, there's going to be a role of identity and or culture. So how do you begin to weed that out? By asking those questions, um, identifying. And so asking questions that are, that are related to their culture, asking, you know, and like I'm talking about, how do you generalize some of those experiences that you have already learned about? And so if you're knowing that something and using, using media or social 
was happening in our social world or on social media as a way to introduce the topic if they're coming in for emotional distress and there's anxiety or how does you know what does I know with your culture this this and this so how does that kind of how do you kind of reconcile what you're wanting to do with who you are asking them how do you how strongly do you feel about your culture or asking them asking about their self-esteem how confident are you in who you are as a person what do you like about yourself you know, I always remind, I work with a lot of students. And so I remind students, we, all of my students, we do identity work. And I remind them that you are a diverse individual. And so let's talk about the things you like about yourself as a diverse being. One degree, you are a part of your culture. The other part, you are an American citizen, possibly, or you're on a green card or whatever that may be. Um, the other part is you are a male or a female, however you identify. Um, you're a student, you're a daughter or a son, you're a sibling. What do you like about yourself in each of these different areas, these different roles that you play? One of which always is your culture. So if you're a Black, how do you like, what do you like about yourself being a Black student or a Black person? If you're Middle Eastern or if you're Muslim, what do you like about yourself being Muslim? Or what do you like about yourself being Middle Eastern? So asking them, what do you like about yourself in relation to this culture, this race, this identity? And then if they say, well, I don't like anything, but let's talk more about that. But it's with those probing questions that we're, I'm asking to bring out what do they think about their culture and their identity, and then we can go from there. So as a white therapist working with uh, diverse clients from BIPOC communities, what are some common biases that we may form as well as like some associated behaviors that we might engage in without realizing that are not culturally competent? Right. So assume we already we already have biases everyone has a bias um, everyone we know of stereotypes good and bad stereotypes of other cultures and of our own culture um, the goal is to not put that on the client and so when you have a client coming in that may be a, of a culture or race that you've heard negative things about it's not bringing that into the session so that means maybe you are doing your own supervision, you're doing your own training, you're doing your, you're being an ally, working to be an ally, doing ally training. You're working on um, your tone. You're working on what am I thinking? Why am I thinking that? Maybe it is researching and doing some positive searching for for people or things in that culture. So if you're only hearing about negative from your community, well, get online and Google some positive things that you are recognizing that are happening within this race or culture. So that way your, your only view of reference is not negative. So that when you're meeting with this client, you have some additional information about stereotypes and biases about this culture, but also you, you've understood some facts. You've gotten some more information and training on that culture. And then also recognizing that what may be, um, may, may not bother one person, may be aggressively offensive to another. And, and so everyone is different. So everyone's um, experiences with microaggressions are different. Some, some students may have never experienced microaggressions. And some students may have every day they go, get up or, and go out, they may have microaggressions. They may experience some type of racism. And so recognize that not everyone is gonna have the same experiences within the same culture or community. Then also be aware of the terms that you're using because for some, POC, people of color is acceptable. Others don't like that. Some black students may prefer black or some may prefer African-American. Being aware that Middle Eastern is not an all-encompassing term, identifying term to recognize all Middle Eastern looking students. 
right? So being aware of how we're referring to students, even when we're not in their presence. How are we referring to, to our clients when we're not in their presence? When we are going into certain areas when we're working, what is the area that we're working in? And what are our stereotypes about that area? So if you go into an area where there's indigenous people, what are, your, what are the general stereotypes in that area? And working to dispel those for yourself. And then, yeah. like I mentioned before, do the training, do the work. Don't expect the client to have to teach you. Do the work. So to attend an ally training. You know, be honest with yourself. Make a list of the general stereotypes you are aware of. Write it down. Look at, oh, these are some really bad stereotypes. Notice your behavior when you're engaging with a person that it doesn't look like you or a different race. And notice the behavior of others because we see that. Black people see the behavior of others, Indian students, Native Americans, clients, we see it. So being aware of what does the behavior of other white therapists look like. So you can see that from a perspective of someone else. But really to reduce your bias, to reduce our biases, we have to be honest that we have them and then do the work. And assume also um, that there is white culture. And so that just thinking that there is culture that is non-white or BIPOC, everyone has some type of culture and there's biases and stereotypes for every person, every race, every culture and identifying what those are and understanding them. I kind of like what you mentioned. Um, it's kind of getting at the way that therapy is almost like a two-way street. So, you know, you're going in to help your client, right? But in doing so, you also have to understand yourself in that mm -hmm. space. Um, and so it's about looking inward as well, not just looking inward for your client, but in yourself and how Absolutely. the world affects you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and I love how it seems like you're suggesting a lot of just reflection overall in our behavior, noticing others' behaviors, um, even in front of the client and, you know, when you're not even seeing the client, how you, how you talk about the client, how you think about mm -hmm. the client, that's a way to notice our own biases and be, begin to fix them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's not about the, your biases are not about the client. They're about your history, your perspective, your training, your upbringing. That's what your bias is about. The community that you live in, what you watch on TV, what you attend to, those are where your biases are coming from. And so it's understanding that we are, we are inundated. We are bombarded with media that talks about biases. So when you're working with the client, understanding first that you have them, but how do you prevent them from coming into the, the therapy room is based on your training, you doing the work yourself, you learning about what you, where your gaps are, your blind spots and fixing those. And that's for all therapists, not just white therapists, that's for every therapist who wants to work with any client, child or adult, we have to know what we're bringing into the space. All right, and now that we talked about as a white therapist with diverse clients, what kind of biases you might have and um, so as a POC therapist with white clients, what are some common biases that we can form? So what are some behaviors that we may engage in that are not culturally competent? Absolutely. So I think one of the challenges that many non-white therapists may have um, is assuming that white clients, their problems aren't valid. And not that they don't have emotional distress or they don't have difficulty, but sometimes a client may come into a space and they're talking about 
um, discrimination, a white client talking about discrimination to a client who suffered, to a therapist who has suffered discrimination or who has been a target of racism or micro or macroaggressions, that may seem very invalidating to the therapist. And so one, we have to be um, conscious of any counter-transference or that internal eye rolling. You know, always, you know, clients tell me that I have a straight face with most clients in, in my sessions. And I tell them, yeah, my, my front face is very astute and very attending, but that back face is making, some in some sessions, making a lot of faces, saying a lot of things, right? So we have to be aware that our front face cannot always match our back face. And we have to be aware of the internal eye roll. And we have to be aware of that kind of transference. We have to be aware of we're, we're putting a caring, a caring ideation on the client. They're complaining about whatever they're experiencing and not downplaying it because we feel like your problem isn't that bad because you're white. Because we assume some form of privilege that they may have that we're discounting their experiences. And so really, again, it's understanding that white clients still have a culture and even in that culture, sometimes can have that, they, they may be experiencing some dissonance. We don't know what that experience, experience is until we get into the conversation of therapy and treatment to really help them with what they're working with. But really it's, it's again, being authentic with what our concerns and our biases are in working towards that, working towards helping. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of being, you know, so making sure that we're not being invalidating is, you know, first and right. foremost, most important in our, in our therapy sessions. And it seems Absolutely. like our biases may get in the way of being validating. And so right. being aware of that is really important. And even our own, our own struggles, Jenny, for a person of color, if we deal with, if we're dealing with something earlier in the day or in our own microsystem of racism, or if we have a microaggression or something happens to us as therapists, when we enter into a space with a white, ther- with a white client, how do we leave that experience at the door? Mm-hmm. You know, we can't go watch a movie like Rosewood or 30 Years a Slave and then go into a session with a white client and, and not have any counter-transference. So we have to be aware of how our experiences are also playing into our interactions and working to, you know, working on ourselves for our own, you know, doing our own training, doing our own coping skills, doing our deep breathing and managing and regulating our emotions before entering into a session with someone we feel may be dis, you know, invalidating to us because of what they're experiencing. So we got to be aware of all those things that are going on in our minds and in our experiences and our emotions at all times. So it, it is a really a juggling effort for some of those who live in some of these areas where racism may be a little bit more prominent, more explicit. So we have to be aware of, of what, what we're bringing into the session. Yeah. Again, going back to that reflection outside of the therapy room, making Absolutely. sure that you're aware of your feelings and your experience and making sure that that's not being put on the client because clients coming in to get help for their problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that kind of um, segues us nicely into our next discussion question. And so what difficulties might POC therapists face in the therapy room um, and how can they better navigate that situation when those instances occur? Absolutely. You know, like I mentioned earlier, if a, a, a person of color therapist is working with the white client that is causing them some emotional distress. 
um, first seek supervision, consult with someone else in your space. And so that's why it's important if you are in private practice as a therapist that you have a network of other therapists you can consult with and that you're not in practice alone, that you have someone else you can meet with or you can bring a, a, a coach in or another mentor that you can talk to because it happens. We will face challenges in the therapy room where we're dealing with clients who may not look like us or who do look like us and have different issues. Um, we're going to face difficulties as therapists because we're also human and we live in a very much racially explicitly charged world, right? So we're going to have difficulty. And so it's going to be beneficial for us to, to get consultation, to get supervision, and if necessary, we get therapy, right? Because you are a therapist doesn't make you exempt from getting therapy yourself. And if you work in a, a school setting, if, you, if you're working in a PWI, a predominantly white institute, then it's also helpful for you to use your voice and speak up about your challenges because if you don't, then other therapists won't know that something's going on. And so you're advocating for support, you're advocating for training, you're advocating, and this is advocating for your own sense of self, your own wellness and your own fortitude, but also for your own success. So it's using your voice and speaking up because there's gonna be difficulty, but to navigate it, you have to seek support. Join a, join a group, join a team of others. And if you're in a group setting or in a, a university setting, then talking to someone that's there who can help you and provide some, some support, but also some direction, very important. Yeah, I can definitely see how like group supervision in itself would be super helpful in mm -hmm. that type of situation. Absolutely. Yeah, and it, it would be important to find that kind of support network that can provide that supervision or, um, yeah, whether it's peer supervision or, yeah, supervision of some sort would be absolutely. Helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we continually assess if we are being culturally competent? Um, I would recommend thinking that you will never be culturally competent and have that, that daily goal of being humble, of being culturally humble, because we will never know the, in, the entirety of our cultures. We don't even know the entirety of our own culture, right? There's so many things that we don't know that and it's, it can be overwhelming to try to learn and be fully competent about everything. And so it's really being more humble and learning. We won't ever get to a point where we are fully culturally competent, but that's the aspiration. The asp we're aspiring to be culturally competent, but daily we're working to be humble in every setting that we have with someone who looks like us or who doesn't. Because even people within our own culture still have different experiences. And we have to acknowledge that and validate their experiences and validate who they are and where they're coming from and what they're bringing into that session and into that meeting and how we can be a benefit to help them navigate that? How can we offer support to them based on what they're experiencing and not how we feel they should be experiencing it? Yeah, so being culturally humble every day and understanding that we don't know everything about a culture, even our own culture. So um, being aware and listening to the individual's experience of Absolutely. their culture and how that contributes to their issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that kind of, you know, ties back to something you said in the very beginning of just like, 
first you have to figure out how strongly one identifies with their culture too. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, like you just said, like you can't like put what you think they should be reacting or how they should be reacting on them. If they're not reacting that certain way, um, Absolutely. Would react, vice versa. Um, but yeah. And I really like what you said, like we can't, we can't be masters of even our own culture, especially with culture in itself is something that's constantly changing. Right. And so like you said, just because someone's from your same culture doesn't mean they identify with it in the same way. And, and right, and Harley, what do you think? There's so many different cultures, right? So there's there's not just culture based on race, but there's culture based on age. There's culture based on music genres, right? There's culture mm-hmm. based on different decades. There's For so sure. many different cultures. And so even though we know we're talking about race-related culture, there's so many, within our culture, there's multiple cultures. And so trying to identify the generation X and generation Y and all the different cultures within that is is too much. So ideally just be humble and ask this, ask your client and assess what's bringing them in and work with them based on their culture because their culture may be different from other, others in their age group or even in their community. For sure. Yeah. Intersectionality is a whole new beast of trying right. to figure out how someone's different cultures all combine. Um, for sure. And it combines differently for different people. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, and so we kind of touched on this a little bit, but how can we discuss the client's culture in the therapy room and how do we collaborative collaboratively do this without putting the burden on the client? Absolutely. And I think is so one, as therapists, we must know the demographics of the community that we are serving, and we have to do the work, which is one reason, in my opinion, using the term POC or people of color can be dangerous, because it's grouping every, every culture outside of white culture, outside of white people, into one group, and and so to being able to say, this is, the, this is the group that I'm working with. It's not the BIPOC group. I'm working with a Black community. I work within the Middle Eastern community. I'm working with South Asian students or South Asian clients. I'm working in this lower SES where it mostly serves this community or this community. Be- and being comfortable with saying race. I think we've gotten so uncomfortable with just saying race and calling race what it is that we get caught up on trying to be politically correct. And we're missing out on an opportunity to really attune to a client and attend to their needs. And so we can, if we can understand who we're working with, the community that we're serving and doing the work beforehand, because again, like I mentioned earlier, um, within the, the Black African-American community, some people don't like to be called African-American, some like to be called Black and vice versa. So it's asking that question, just like we have um, the identifier, she, her, hers, and they, them, what do you prefer? Do you prefer Black, African-American, Latina? Do you prefer Asian? Do you prefer um, Bengali? What do you prefer? Do you prefer Indian? Do you... So asking them that question, how do they identify? Um, and so for some, it may be helpful to use hot topics with it, what's happening in our social environment and that larger macro system. Okay, so this happened in, in Iraq and you have a student or a client that's Iraqi asking them like, wow, I heard about this going on in Iraq. Did, did your family say anything about that? Do you have any family that still lives there? Because I know you're from Iraq, so I'm going to assume maybe your, your family may have immigrated recently or even if you are first generation, 
or you're a second generation, your grandparents or aunts or uncles may still be there. Asking that question, if they say, oh no, my family's gone, oh, okay. Well, that still happened in Iraq. How are you guys feeling about that? Has it come up in your household? Not being afraid to ask those questions, mm-hmm. right? When, when, we, when the, the murder of George Floyd was so openly broadcast on television, that opened up the door for a lot of white therapists to start talking about race with black clients. Some took the opportunity to do so, many didn't. But that was an open entry doorway that was saying, talk about race with your client because it is impacting them. And maybe vicariously impacting them. Maybe they haven't even seen it, right? We don't know unless we ask them to be competent and humble, it's our responsibility to explore every factor that could be potentially affecting their emotional wellness, their emotional fortitude. So if they say, oh, I didn't, I didn't know about that. Okay, great. Or what are you talking about? Well, hopefully you've done the research that you know what you're talking about. You're not, you weren't putting that on them to mm-hmm. ask and, or you're not just a performing ally and you're, you didn't know like, oh, I really don't know what happened. I just heard somebody talking about Iraq and whatever happened, then that's the problem. So making sure you're authentic when you're bringing up something that you're interested in and exploring more with them. And don't be fake about it. Clients know when the the therapist is being fake. And that's going to cause a problem for their treatment, their therapy, progress, and the relationship. So I recommend if you don't know, if you haven't done the research, don't bring it up. Mm -hmm. Do the work first. If you're going to bring up a hot topic, make sure you know enough about it to have a a educational, informational, or informal healthy conversation or dialogue about it. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of putting the burden on them to talk about it and educate you, making sure that you're prepared to talk about this, if this is a a factor that is affecting your client. Absolutely. Because depending on what the topic is, if you bring it up and it's a sore subject and you haven't prepared to talk about it and it makes that topic makes them angry, how do you manage that? Now you've angered someone because that was a very hot, or hot spot for them and you brought it up now they're they're in the session angry and upset and you don't know really why because you haven't done the research knowing what the topics are that you're wanting to engage in knowing what music they're listening to knowing what what's happening and again this is if you're working in a in an area or in a community that's predominantly a specific race or culture that's different from your own do the work and so also what i'm hearing is kind of like the things you're asking about are things that are important for you to understand as the therapist, like how this is impacting you, right? It's not asking them to teach you about their culture. It's asking, how did this thing that happened in your culture impact you? And how are you doing with this? Absolutely. Even if it was a thousand miles away, it still could be impactful. You know, it still can be damaging to their self-esteem. We, we all recognize. So, you know, Back when I was younger, there was, you know, I guess maybe still going out, the look of models and the how models must look, the perfect woman with the perfect ideal body shape is. We, we know in, in Metro Detroit, we don't see, we don't have models here. We don't have one race. We don't have, you know, catalog models. We don't have that here. So our ideas and views of that was on TV that still impacted young girls' self-esteem. 
that still impacted the girl's body self-image, right? So we recognize that what people see on TV is still going to impact the way they feel about themselves. So in that same vein of thinking, and someone sees someone die on TV or they're seeing racism in their, their country, or they're seeing this discrimination happening, that same train of that line of thinking, you don't have to experience it firsthand, but to see it or to hear negative things about it can still impact your self-esteem or your body image. So how can I bring that up? Because it may be impacting how you feel about yourself. So let's talk about it. And how do I bring that up without putting the burden on you to teach me how mm-hmm your body image is impacted by seeing models on TV. Definitely getting at those um, like internalizing factors that occur in our everyday life, even if it's like you said, not right in front of you. Right. That's why Carrie is learning and, and thinking and impact. Absolutely. And so um, just our final question here for you. Are there other resources that encourage self-reflection or culturally informed case conceptualization that you would recommend for therapists to um, kind of use? You know, absolutely. I would recommend that therapists who are looking to increase their awareness or their knowledge about conceptualizing or ways to self-reflect, I would recommend them to do the work and identify resources um, that fit within their framework, their theoretical framework. Because for, for a therapist who is a family therapist, that from that way of thinking, that training, that conceptualization is going to be different from someone who's an existential therapist, mm-hmm. right? Or someone who's humanistic or CBT or DBT. There's different, these different theoretical training frameworks may have different ways and different foundations on how to conceptualize. They may have, I mean, you can be an integrative therapist but at the foundation of that is a way that you're thinking about how this person looks at their life. And so there's a lot of trainings, teachings, writings, books, research from within these different therapy frameworks, these theoretical frameworks that people can look into to find out for a family therapist, what's the best way to conceptualize? What am I looking at as a family therapist? What's important to identify and understand then once they have this understanding of what's needed, how do I build a biopsychosocial that is based on this information that I need to conceptualize? Let me add some questions that's related to that into my biopsychosocial. And even if it's not a, even if you're working for an organization that gives you one, still doing the work to find out maybe there's some additional questions you should be asking in your intakes that can help you better conceptualize Um, your clients or who you're working with. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think when you and I previously spoke, you said that you and your colleagues do a sort of training as well. Absolutely. I have two other colleagues who um, also were in school with me um, at the Michigan School of Psychology, and we created a training called Race in the Therapy Room. We talk about how do you, how do we bring race up in the therapy room and how does race intersect with who we are in the therapy room? So we talk about different ways to navigate that, kind of kind of touching on some of the things that we talked about here, but more on the, the therapist perspective. How do you work with the client who is a different race or culture from you or the same with different experiences? That seems like a really helpful and useful training. It is. And if anyone is interested, 
in this training, you can also reach out to me and we can discuss what your needs are. And we can go from there setting up an opportunity time for us to come into your organization or school to do some training. What is the best way for people to contact you um, to inquire about this training? Absolutely. They can contact me um, at my, on my website that you have listed up, up on the podcast briefing. Mm-hmm. Um, they can also reach me by email. Now, my email is Dr. Carmen, that's D-R-C-A-R-M-E-N, at Empowered Elevation, P-L-L-C.com. So I'm not going to spell all that. It's, it's, it's spelled the way it sounds, Empowered Elevation, P-L-L-C.com. <laughs> uh, but they can reach out to me on that for more information, and I can send them the write-up for it. They want to know what it's about. Awesome. Yes. And we will be for sure to um, put your email in the description of this episode as well. So if anyone would like to reach out to Carmen about this training, um, you can find her email in the description. All right. As a final question that we ask to every guest, um, who is someone in the field of psychology from a diverse or underrepresented community that you believe has excelled or done amazing work or deserves to be shared or recognized? I would love to recognize my two mentors, Dr. Shannon Chavez-Correll and Dr. LaToya Gaines, both of them um, from the Michigan School of Psychology, both of who are my mentors in private practice as well. Um, Dr. Shannon Chavez-Correll, Dr. CK is a Latina and Dr. Gaines is a black psychologist, but both have done uh, a lot of work in Um, multicultural counseling and diversity and different trainings. And so they both really have um, taught me and worked with me on expanding my ideas of of multicultural counseling and therapy. And also when I was, you know, experiencing microaggressions and difficulties with race, they were really um, persons I could go to and talk to. So they were really key in helping me survive my doctorate program. (laughs) Oh yeah, we know that's hard. <laughs> but Absolutely. they sound they sound like great mentors and great uh, supervisors and mm-hmm. seems like they um, really like to engage in this work and also support students in that same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bell. Um, we enjoyed speaking with you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Practicing Anti-Racism Clinically. This podcast was funded by an award from the APIC Call to Action on Equity, Inclusion, Justice, and Social Responsivity. Resources associated with today's episode can be found at our website at psychology.okstate.edu. That's psychology.okstate.edu. If you hover over the Diversity tab, you can find the Student Diversity Committee. By clicking this link, you can find the Practice ARC podcast tab all associated resources and supplemental materials for each episode.